Open your Bibles this morning to John chapter 10. The Gospel of John chapter 10 is where we're going to be starting in just a few moments. So I encourage you to go there. And I'm so thankful you have a copy of the Word of God with you. Uh, if you do not have a copy of the Word of God, we'd love to give one to you. Uh, you can go by the Welcome Center after service today. You can pick that up, and uh, we'd love to give you that so you have God's Word for yourself. If you have a device today, your phone or maybe an iPad or a tablet of some kind, uh, you can go on our uh, app. You can download our church app, North Goodland, BC, in your, your app store. Uh, you can download our app through the app. There's actually a Bible feature on there as well. And so if you want to take some time right now to go ahead and do that, you can. Um, and we encourage you to have God's Word before you. Uh, this morning, we're starting a brand new series. Uh, it's called Reclaimed. Reclaimed, And uh, I'm actually very excited to walk through this for the next four weeks. Uh, we are going to just walk out some truths about the idea of us being reclaimed in Christ, of our, our individuals being reclaimed in Christ. And uh, we're going to cover a lot of topics in the next four weeks, and so I encourage you to be a part of the series. Uh, if you can't be here one of the weeks, you can go on our website or on our app, and you can listen to the messages. Uh, usually, they're, they're put right on immediately the close of service. That message is put on the website or put on the app, and so I encourage you to do that. Um, this morning, however, if you go to find this message, and it's not up right after service today, uh, TJ is our normal sound guy, and he usually, right after service is over, plugs that in and everything. Um, he may still be able to do that, but he's on vacation this week. Him and his wife, Danielle, are on vacation, much needed vacation, and uh, they're just having a great time for what it looks like. And so uh, I can say this because now he's not here, and sometimes people get embarrassed by this. I am truly, truly uh, so thankful for all that minister here. We've got great volunteers. We've got great lay people. We have amazing individuals that teach. Uh, right now, there's teachers teaching your children or grandchildren uh, in our junior churches, in our nursery. Um, and I can tell you that they do not look at it like babysitting. They're investing in these kids' lives. And I am just so thankful, not just for our volunteers that are teaching and serving now, but for a long time now, we have had some amazing volunteers. And those that help in our audiovisual stuff are no different. And uh, when you see uh, Danielle and TJ here, uh, when they get back from vacation, please let them know uh, how much you appreciate them. But maybe today, when you leave service, if you have a child in junior church or nursery or one of the classrooms, maybe when you go pick that child up today, you'll let the teacher know you really appreciate them. And, and what got me thinking about this was, right before, uh, as the kids were being dismissed to junior church, I kind of overheard someone uh, tell one of our junior church teachers, I just want to say thank you for, for working with the kids, for teaching the kids. And that just kind of was a cool moment for me. And I saw her hug this woman and said, I just want to, you know, I appreciate that. And it was so cool. And so let someone know today uh, that you appreciate what they're doing so that we can gather together and worship. And so I want to walk this out though over the next couple of weeks, and I pray you'll be here. Uh, we're going to talk about what does it look like to, to be reclaimed to be reclaimed. And so uh, for me, I don't know about you, but I find it really interesting to watch someone take something that seemingly has lost its value, seemingly has no purpose anymore, it's broken down, it's in disarray or disrepair, and they can take that and repurpose it and refinish it and create this beautiful work of art, okay? Now, I'm not very good at that, okay? I can't create like these beautiful works of arts out of like palettes, Right? Like when I finish working on a palette, it just looks like a different form of a palette. Like there's no real, some of these things on Facebook, like people building tables and beautiful, I'm like, it's a half kind of constructed palette. That's all I got, okay? Doesn't look finished, but some people can take those things and just build these beautiful things. Um, how many of you have seen the show Barnwood Builders? If you've seen that show, raise your hand, okay? Really, really cool show. What I love about that show is these guys take these run down, just fallen down barns. And they take the lumber from those barns, and then they build these beautiful cabins. And I always love in the show, he'll show you kind of some of the work they've done. And I'm always amazed by that when I see this show. And I'm thinking, man, these guys are crazy good at taking something that nobody would give any attention to. 100-year-old barn, falling down. Most people would knock it over and just call it done. These guys see the value in that. They see the potential in that. They can look beyond the surface disarray, and they see the potential within that lumber. There's also a guy on that show, and I was asking Anthony right before I came up because I reminded myself of this, or it reminded me of this, but I can't remember his name now. I think it might be like Johnny Jet, something like that. Is that okay? Older guy that's got the beard, kind of. A, every time we watch this show, my boys are like, that looks like someone from the Proctor family. Like, that's just how... 
And I said, that's just Mr. Steve Proctor in about 20 years. So just go with, that's fine. If you haven't seen the show, now when you watch it, you're going to be like, that is Steve. It looks just, well, an older version of Steve. He's so young. I mean, he's only in his 40s, I think. So he should be pretty young, you know. And, but no, we are so thankful to walk this out this morning because I want us to see something here this morning about how we, too, can be reclaimed um, in the exact same way that these guys can look at a barn and see the potential and see, look beyond the decay. I truly believe God looks in on our lives. And he doesn't just see the decay and the rot that sin has caused. He sees the value within. He sees the potential. And he can reclaim us for his glory and create in our lives these beautiful masterpieces that others look at and say, I can't believe where you are today based on where you were before. I can't believe the change that has happened in your life. What changed? What happened? You didn't used to think that way. You didn't used to act that way. You didn't used, and all we can do is say, man, it's all to the glory of God that he saved me and he redeemed me and he's making me into the image of Christ. And so I want to encourage us over the next four weeks to think along these lines. You see, God looks beyond the decay and the rot of sin and sees the value and the potential of who we really are. Through the gospel, we are reclaimed. Amen. We are reclaimed in the gospel. What does that word mean? Well, the word reclaim means to retrieve or recover. To retrieve or recover something previously lost, given, or paid. To obtain the return of. To obtain the return of something previously lost. And if that's not a testimony of the gospel, I don't know what is. That we were once lost in our sin and we were reclaimed. We were returned back. In the garden, humanity fell. We were lost. From that moment forward, humanity was severed from the relationship that God had purposed us to have with him. But through Christ, when Christ comes, he opens the door to be returned or recovered to our true and real standing before God. And what a beautiful gift salvation is. It's not just I get to go to heaven when I die. It's in this life I am returned to right standing before God. And not by the things that I have done, but by the wonderful gift that Christ has provided to us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so we gather this morning to worship him for that reason. Because the gospel is not about you as much as it's about Christ. We think that's kind of a silly statement. Well, but come on, the gospel is all about humanity. It's about how we come to know Christ. In that aspect, yes, we needed him, but the gospel is much more about him than it is about us. The gospel is more about his grace and his mercy and his sacrifice and his love. See, the gospel is, I couldn't resurrect myself from my sin. I needed someone outside the situation to resurrect me. What does Ephesians chapter 2 tell us? That we were quickened, we were made alive. That means we were no different than Lazarus in the tomb. We could do nothing to change our standing. But God interjected. God came to us in the person of Christ and provided a way that we, by faith, through grace, might be able to receive salvation and be brought back to life. And so being reclaimed is not just I get to go to heaven when I die. Being reclaimed is I get to experience the presence of God and heaven now while on earth. And we get to enjoy that relationship with God. I want to start by looking at somewhat of a familiar text that will help set the stage for our series to come the next couple of weeks. We're going to unpack it at great depth this morning. We're going to walk through this chapter in John chapter 10 and address some things. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to use this as kind of the springboard into the other topics we're going to tackle as far as being reclaimed in Christ. And so John chapter 10, look at verse 7. If you don't have a Bible, look off of someone that does. And if you're sitting next to someone that doesn't have a Bible, then I'm just going to read this for all of us to be able to understand today. Verse 7, Then said Jesus unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved, and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life. But not just life. What does he say? And that they might have it more abundantly. Verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. 
But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice. There shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore does, not, or does my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father." There was a division, therefore, among, again, among the Jews of these sayings. And many of, them he say, he, many of them said, excuse me, he has a devil and is mad. Why hear you him? Others said, these are not the words of him that has a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? Before we even go to prayer, can we just take a moment? It's not really part of the message per se, but is that not our culture today? Is that not our culture today? You see, there's... The Bible says over and over again that for Israel, Jesus was going to be a stumbling block. There was no way around this thing, this person, this topic of Jesus. They had to make a choice, savior or lunatic. He was either possessed or he was the son of God. There was no middle ground. And here we see this kind of coming to the surface. They were ultimately confused. Man, he seems like he's of God. He does these miracles, but he could have a devil. Isn't that what the Pharisees said? And Jesus rebuked them harshly when they said, well, you're only doing this work by the work of the devil. That's how you're casting out demons. I find it interesting that when you even go back 2,000 years, there was still this debate among even those that were looking for the Messiah or supposed to be looking for the Messiah. This guy's nuts, right? He's crazy. He's mad, the Bible says. He's possessed with a, a devil, a spirit. He's possessed by a demon, and I'm so thankful for the one that spoke up and said, but wait a minute. Can a devil heal the blind? I'll take it a step farther. We know the devil and his demons can perform what's called false miracles. And I believe, how do we know a false miracle from a real miracle? Well, a false miracle goes outside the bounds of Scripture and always directs the attention away from Christ. Now, it doesn't seem like it does, but these individuals on TV or the Internet when it's all about them, and then they'll throw on the end, we'll praise Jesus, but it's really about promoting self, I would wonder, is that really truly an act of God? Because see, here we see Jesus always did the things that God asked him to do, and it always reflected back to honor and praise Christ, to honor and praise the Father, to draw people to salvation and to prove his deity. And so here we see this amazing back and forth, and I didn't want to get into that too much, but I want you to just think about this. There's no difference today than there was 2,000 years ago. We have to make a choice. Now, who is Christ? Either he's nuts or he really did mean everything he said. And if he meant everything he said and everything he said was true, then he's not a lunatic, then he's the son of God. And so let's pray and ask God to speak to us through this passage in John 10. We're going to jump through the text a little bit this morning and talk about what this idea of being reclaimed looks like. But let's pray and ask God to speak to us this morning. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather. I pray, Lord, that as many in this room, Lord, right now have got different things going on in their lives. Some are, have been so busy to just sit still before you for a time. It's, it's such a great gift. Some have been so worn out by work, by chores, uh, Lord, we, we talk about the beautiful weather, and while it's amazing to have the beautiful weather, sometimes it creates work for us to do, to get outside and get some yard work done, Lord. And it's good to do those things, but I, I know like anyone else, we can all get tired. We can all get kind of run down and, and maybe just have a lot in our minds. And we've, some in this room are already planning what's going on tomorrow and Tuesday. They're already getting tired from things that haven't even happened yet. It's not even taking place, but they're already getting tired because they know Wednesday's coming or Thursday's coming or whatever they have going on. I pray, Lord, that you'd help us to be still before today, to hear what you have for us, to allow you to speak into our lives. Thank you for the word of God, which provides to us this, this understanding. And I pray that we would not desire to just understand these things in our own minds, but to allow you to teach us these things that we can apply them to our lives. Thank you for reclaiming what nobody else would have touched. Thank you for reclaiming something that so many others would have called worthless. Thank you for stepping into this world 
Thank you for salvation. Thank you for grace. Thank you for for equipping us with all that we need to do what you've called us to do in this world. But Father, may we understand truer today your love, your grace, and your compassion for us. Father, thank you for all this, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. John chapter 10 is a popular passage, and I read the majority of the chapter, but there's obviously six verses I would encourage you to read for time's sake later if you have a desire to do that to find the full context. Uh, But this is truly a powerful passage, and there's so much truth found within these verses. But I want to key in on one verse to kind of kick off this series, and that's verse 10. We see here in verse 10, the thief comes not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. We see here that in this world, there are two forces pulling and uh, and pushing our lives. There's the thief and there's the good shepherd. There's the, the devil. Many believe the thief is the devil. And obviously the good shepherd we know is Jesus Christ. And so both have a plan for our life, right? It's true. Both have a desired purpose for our life. Both want a specific end to come in this life. Jesus says, my purpose is an abundant life. The thief's purpose is to, to steal from you and to rob from you, to leave you want, to kill you, to destroy whatever is in your life. And so we see these two forces at work. But I want you to know that verse 10 is a victory verse. It's a verse of encouragement to those of us that know Christ. The word abundant here, by the way, has nothing to do with your checkbook. So let's just get that right out of the way. Has nothing to do with your health, meaning you're never going to get sick. Has nothing to do with that. It's so much better than that. Let me just say that. And when we make it about surface things like checkbook or circumstances or situations, we're, we're taking away the true value of what he's saying here. Because the abundant life is not based in stuff. It's based in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. And sometimes in this life we have blessings and there's abundance, meaning of stuff. Sometimes in this life we have lack. There's a want. But what did Paul say? In whatsoever state I am, I have learned to be content. And so what does this word really talk about? What does this idea really look like in our lives? So the word abundant here means exceeding some number or rank. Exceeding some number or rank. It's exceeding something that we've put a, a line on. We've said this is the standard, this is the number. It's exceeding that. In the King James Version, the word for abundant here in the original language is used for other English words. Those words that are translated from the same word where we get abundant is more, beyond measure, vehemently, more abundantly, advantage, very highly, exceeding abundantly above. The idea here when you look at that, these words that describe this idea of abundant life, it is a, a life that is overflowing, that is exceeding, that is, that is far above anything we can imagine. Basically, our life in Christ is meant to be a life overflowing with joy in a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's so much better than just stuff, isn't it? And the abundant life means no matter where I find myself, I am overflowing with the, the, the love and the joy and the peace and the grace of Christ. Amen? No matter where you find yourself, no matter what's going on around you, this is how Paul and Silas could sit in a prison cell and at midnight be found singing praises to God. How in the world do you sing praises to God sitting in a prison cell? Because they were living the abundant life. Because they weren't looking at their situation and determining that to say, this is what this looks like. No, no, no. It wasn't the abundant life when they were having victories and successes and all of that. And then it wasn't when they were sitting in a prison cell. It was the abundant life because that's firm and constant in Christ. And so we live this out in our lives. We live the abundant life. It doesn't just stop at this life, though, does it? See, what's, what's real living? Real living is, I know this isn't my only life. Real living is, I know there's a life to come. The abundant life is, I can live much more exceedingly and vehemently in Christ today because I know this isn't all there is. And I'm living with a greater joy, an expectation, a guaranteed hope. But see, he not only encourages us to live the abundant life and encourages us that that's possible for us, but he provided the abundant life through 
sacrificing himself for the sheep. How many times? Man, just over and over again, what does he say? That I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And you know what he's doing? He doesn't have to, but do you know what he's doing? He's providing to us the evidence of his goodness. Right? What makes him a good shepherd? I laid down my life for the sheep. He's proved to us his goodness. This is why, man, we got to be so careful here. When things, what did we talk about the last couple of weeks? Withstanding the waves of disappointment in our life, exasperating disappointment in our lives. We have to be so careful because if we're not careful, we start to doubt his goodness based on things he never said proved his goodness. We start doubting the goodness of God based on things or the evidence of it we think when he didn't even say that's how you check it. That's how you prove it. He doesn't say, I'm good and I'll always do what you want and that's how you'll know I'm always good. I mean, where's that in Scripture? Oh, but brother, doesn't it say, I love this one, doesn't it say he'll always give us what we ask for if we pray it in Jesus' name? Again, that'll work if I can charge you $500 for prayer or a hanky that I'll dip in some water. That'll work. But what did Jesus really say? If it agrees with the will of God. And if it agrees with the will of God, he says, I will do what you ask. And that's the hard part because when God's will in a moment in our life doesn't seem to match up with what we thought it was, even though it's a good thing, all of a sudden now we start doubting his goodness because, well, I thought this was your will. Man, but rather realize the abundant life is saying, no, no, I'm going to submit to you as my good shepherd, not because you do this or that now, but because you did this back then, 2,000 years ago when you died on the cross for my sins. That proves your goodness to me. That's really, and by the way, it's more than we need, isn't it? Does, is God obligated to prove to us he's good? By the way, let me just reality check. God's not obligated to you for anything. God is not in heaven going, oh, I hope they like me today. I hope they accept me today. This is why I understand what people mean when they say this, but I have a little bit of an issue with the phrase, accept Jesus as your Savior. I've said it. I slip up and I say it sometimes now, and you might say, what's wrong with that? Nothing wrong with it, but if we're not careful, it gives the wrong impression. Yes, we receive Christ. We accept Christ as our Savior, but please don't think God is in heaven going, oh, I really, really need your acceptance to be validated as God. He is quite confident as God. He is very self-sufficient. Remember, creator, created. And so when we accept Christ, it's not that God's going, oh, whew, I can get through the rest of eternity because so-and-so accepted me. No, no, no. It brings him joy and satisfaction because his love for us is you're my child, my created being, and I want a relationship with you forever. And it affirms his glory and grace, by the way. So accepting Christ, yes, while I understand what we mean there, but please don't think we, he needs our acceptance. We desperately need his acceptance. And that's what we find in Christ, is it not? So many of us fight for acceptance. We think the abundant life is getting the praises of others, to please man, to make man hunger after what you have, to make, maybe it crosses your mind when you pull up to a stoplight and you're driving your nice car and someone pulls up next to you and the thought runs through your mind, I hope they're looking over going, I want one of those. That's how messed up we are as human beings. We're that off, okay? See, we, we understand we don't need other people's acceptance. We have been accepted through Christ by God. And so this morning, as we talk about the abundant life, man, how can we not live the abundant life? Our God died for us and rose again, resurrected us from sin and death, equipped us and empowered us with his Holy Spirit, gave us his word so he could have a relationship with us, asks us to pray to him, and then answers our prayers if it's according to his will. How can, you not, how can we not live the abundant life with all that God has given to us? And so this morning, this kind of sets the stage for the coming weeks. And this morning, I want to kind of unpack this idea of living the reclaimed life living the reclaimed life. See, we understand these ideas we're going to talk about in the coming weeks, uh, reclaiming our faith, uh, reclaiming our marriage, uh, reclaiming joy. We're going to unpack all these things. But this morning, I want to talk about what does it look like to live the reclaimed life? Well, first, we have to understand, and we talked about this already a little bit, and so we're just going to kind of 
breathes through this port again. A reclaimed life is a life that is rescued. A reclaimed life is a life rescued. So John chapter 10, and look at verse 9. I love that he gives us the understanding of how do we know what the abundant life is. So this is where God's word is such a great gift, is it not? And did you ever just read God's word and you're like, man, thank you, God, for providing this to us. Again, he wasn't obligated to give that to you. He chose to allow you to read his word. But when you read verse 10, if you don't take it in context, what can you start to think? Man, I really wonder, what's the abundant life? I wonder what that looks like. And then we're left to kind of just, well, I think it kind of means this, and they think it kind of means that. But I love that God tells us, Jesus tells us what the abundant life is. And how I interpret this when I see this, I think verse 9 speaks to the abundant life. Verse 9, I am the door. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be, what does that imply? We need to be saved, right? We need him to save us. We need him to rescue us. So first aspect of abundant life is what? We went through Christ to be saved. So now we're in Christ. Now we know that wording from the rest of Scripture. We're in Christ. Then he says, and shall go in and out and find pasture. What does pasture look like? I want everyone to do this for a second. When you think about sheep, okay? So everyone close your eyes. You're going to have to open them again, so no nodding off, okay? I know, sun coming in, it's warm, just get a little hungry. Mm, just take a little nap. No, don't do that. Wake up. Okay. I want you to close your eyes, and I want you to picture just a, a fold of sheep, just a group of sheep out in a field. Green meadows, right? I want you to picture this in your mind. So everybody do this. If you're still looking at me, you're not doing it. So do this, okay? Okay, can you get that picture in your mind? Is it a peaceful setting? Okay, you can look at me before you fall asleep. Back up here. Back up here. Eyes up here. Okay. Steve, eyes up here. Here we go. Okay. Here we go. Eyes up here. Okay. Now he's getting back at me for my joke. He's like, you're going to keep insulting me. I'm going to bed. I'm just... I said he was in his 40s. That's a compliment, right? That's a good thing. When you think of that scene, I don't know why I just picture such calmness. That beautiful blue sky, sunlight just beaming down. And what's amazing is the sheep are just kind of living life, right? They're just doing what they do. They're enjoying some lunch, okay? They're just kind of milling about. They're just enjoying the presence of the pasture. They're just enjoying that time. Do you know what Jesus says here? He says, hey, listen, through salvation, you'll be able to come and go. Doesn't mean we lose it and get it back. Don't go that way, okay? It's saying there's this, this open door, this freedom that we have, this liberty that we can experience the pasture that God provides. And I think of just the stillness of that moment, the joy, the peace. See, to me, and again, I, I, I don't know if anybody else would disagree with me or different commentators or whatever. I've always read this, and I always think, God, thank you for telling me what the abundant life is in verse 9. That's the context, isn't it? That's the whole point of Bible study. If we just take verse 10, and then we just take the word abundant, you, know, you can make it say anything you want. You can put anything in there you want. But he says, in verse 9, by the way, there's nothing about possessions. It's about a person. I have a relationship, this liberty, this freedom to just go in and out and find rest. This is really the fulfillment of Psalm 23, is it not? This is what Psalm 23 speaks about. Now he says, I'm giving you that. I'm the door to Psalm 23. You don't have to keep begging for it or trying to make it happen in your life. Just Enter in. Just find rest. We said before, back in Exodus chapter 5, God said, come out and rest. Pharaoh said, no, stay and work. God's desire is to have rest, not inactivity rest. It doesn't mean we just sit on our hands and do nothing. There's a job, there's a mission to do, but it's not work when we're resting in the, in the shepherd. See, a reclaimed life is a life rescued. We were lost sheep without a shepherd, with no clear understanding of who we are, or why we are here. Remember that this sermon in John chapter 10 follows the situation in John 9. So let's back up a little bit more. John 10, this sermon, if you will, this message about the Good Shepherd, which it is a sermon, and I love this. Only Jesus could teach this eloquently and this well to make these points. But in John chapter 10, we see the response to what happened in John chapter 9. 
You see, in John chapter 9, to summarize it, there's a man that is healed who was born blind. The Pharisees question the man about the healing, and when he speaks of Jesus in a positive light, I'm summarizing here, even asking the Pharisees at one point if they ask questions because do they want to follow him? I love that. You keep asking me these questions I've told you over again. Do you want to be his disciple too? Well, that just infuriates them when you read the text. And as a result of them getting infuriated, they actually insult him and then kick him out of the synagogue. They insult him and then they kick him out. Because, well, he was a man born blind. He's in his sin. Who is he to criticize them? So he's been kicked out, probably feeling pretty down. I mean, talk about spiritual high to spiritual low. You were just healed of blindness and then you're asked to leave the church. What happened? (laughs) How did all of that take place? But I want to look at Jesus' response to this situation. And we're going to read verses 35 through 41 of John 9. And then we'll understand a little bit better why does he go into John chapter 10 the way he does. So John 9, 35, following this whole back and forth, Pharisees questioned this man that was healed. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had cast him out. When they had found him, and when he had found him, He said unto him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? Now, two things to notice real quick. Who found who? Jesus found the man. The man didn't go find Jesus. Jesus sought him when he was kicked out, when he was down, when he was discouraged. I pray that we would understand that Jesus is always the one who seeks after us. Even when we think we're seeking after him, he's really already started working on your heart. That's the only reason you feel a pull towards Christ. Paul says it clearly, no man seeks after God. Verse 36, he asks him, do you, and then secondly, he asks him t- to testify of his faith. Do you believe on the Son of God? He answered and said, who is he, Lord, that I might believe on him? This is amazing. Jesus healed a man who didn't even know he was the Messiah. You might say, whoa, wait, 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 wait. But I, th- I was always told, or I've heard on TV, that if you, if you have enough faith, God will heal you and do what you want him to do. But you just got to believe. And the Bible does say believe and to have faith. But here's the thing. Jesus healed this man. He didn't even know who Jesus was. And this is the amazing thing. Then how did Jesus heal this man if this man didn't have enough understanding of who Christ was to even really believe that Jesus was the Messiah and therefore be healed? Because God will do what God will do. Jesus healed this man because Jesus chose to heal this man. Because Jesus decided this would be best to glorify me and to bless this individual. So Jesus acted as he decided to act. And I'm sure this man had some level of faith. I don't think this man was faithless. So don't, don't go out of here thinking, oh, he doesn't even believe in God. No, he, he most likely believed in God. And obviously Jesus asked this question. So this man had an understanding of the Messiah to come. But he did not make the connection between the coming Messiah and Jesus just yet. Because that's his question. I don't know who he is. And if you tell me who he is, I'd believe on him. Jesus said unto him, Thou hast both seen him, and it is he that talks with thee. Man, what would you do if that was you? I'd fall off my chair. Wait, 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 wait. Uh, He's talking to me right now? And what's the cool thing about that? How can he see him? How can he see the Messiah? Because he was been healed already before this encounter. It's amazing. Then it goes on to say in verse 38, and he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Now we see him taking a faith in Messiah to come and connecting it to the person of Jesus Christ. Now I put personal faith in Christ, not just in a concept of Messiah. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I am come to this world, that they which see not might see, and that they which see might be made blind. Now look what happens here in verse 40. And some of the Pharisees which were with him heard these words. And said unto him, are we blind also? See, Jesus never said anything like just by whim or chance. Everything he said had a specific purpose. Why did he say it that way in that setting? So that the Pharisees would be pricked in their heart and say, whoa, 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 whoa. You're saying we're blind too? Then you read into verse uh, 41, Jesus said unto them, if you were blind, you should have now sinned. But now you say, we see, therefore your sin remains. He's saying, man, you're the ones that are saying it by your actions, by the way you're talking, by the faith you're not exercising and showing. You're the ones that are saying this. Not me. I'm just calling an apple an apple. I'm just, it is what it is. And then we read 
chapter 10 and this beautiful picture of the good shepherd. You see, the religious leaders of Israel were called to be shepherds, but they were not good shepherds. They carried themselves more as a hireling that Jesus speaks of in verse 12, which we'll get to soon, than the shepherd. Christ came and showed us great compassion, looking at us in our lost state, not merely criticizing our wandering, but practically doing something about it. In verse 15, again, it says that he lays down his life for the sheep. The word for in that verse, actually in the original Greek, carries the notion of for our sakes and in our place. For our sakes and in our place. He rescued us before we even knew we needed to be rescued. So a reclaimed life is a, res- a reclaimed life is a life rescued in Christ, as well as a life rescued to purpose. See, a reclaimed life is a life rescued, but it's also a life rescued to purpose. John chapter 10, look at verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. You see, in our sin, we could not see the divine purpose for our lives. We were left to fill the gaps with surface things, only bringing momentary peace. When we are reclaimed by Christ, our lives are returned to an understanding of why we were created. Christ says that when we hear his voice, we follow him. Relationship leads to action. Now, this is not saying his audible voice. Many have tried to make it say that. That is not what the text means. It's not an audible voice. Christ says that when we hear his voice, it is a prompting through the word of God by the Holy Spirit. It's not an audible voice. Now, I know there's times you may say, man, God was leading and guiding, and I swear it was audible. I don't believe that's what Jesus is saying here. What he's referring to is what's coming. Remember, all of this context, the Spirit of God is going to speak audibly to individuals as they write the Word of God. We know that to be true. But once the canon is closed and the line of apostles has ceased, we don't see God communicating Uh, revelation that way. We see now an illumination of God's word. What I mean is God's not giving any more revelation. God's not giving us new books of the Bible. Uh, Anytime someone claims to have new revelation of God, apart from God's word, be careful there because that's usually how things like Joseph Smith's movement began. That's how things like the Quran was written. Well, because God gave me this extra biblical revelation. And we'll unpack that maybe at some point this year in a different series. But when you look at this here, what is he talking about here? He's reminding us or telling us what the Holy Spirit's going to do in our lives as followers of Christ. One of the key roles of the Holy Spirit in the believer's life is to point us to Christ. What does he say? To bring all things to our remembrance. John chapter 15, Jesus says, If you abide in me, my words abide in you. When he says, hear my voice, he's speaking about the word of God that will speak to us. Again, this is the idea of the gift of the Holy Spirit. In so many churches today, though, the Holy Spirit is made the main attraction. Now, I'm not saying the Holy Spirit is an equal part of the Godhead. We know that he is a part of the Trinity, and he is equally God and the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Spirit is not the Father. But the Spirit is God. But when you read in John these different things the Spirit's going to do, Jesus says over and over again, the point of the Spirit is to direct you to Christ. The point of the Spirit is to direct you back to these things, to comfort you and to equip you with what you need, and it's going to point you back to Jesus Christ. We see that in John chapter 16, verses 12 through 16. Jot it down for note's sake. I get frustrated when I hear people speaking or elevating the Spirit over Christ, or the emphasis is more on the Spirit and His moving, if you will. Be careful there. Yes, the Spirit moves. Yes, the Spirit prompts. We don't want to deny that, but I want to be careful that we put it through the lens of Scripture and we realize it's to push us back to Christ. Why is that important? Because when we hear the Word of God and we know the Word of God working in us and through us, then we can live the purpose we were called to live. We realize later in the New Testament the Spirit's prompting of us to Christ come through God's Word. And the church, when we refuse to listen to his leading, we are drifting from our purpose and not living the reclaimed life. So what does it mean to live the reclaimed life? We know we've been rescued, and we know we've been rescued to purpose. Quickly, a reclaimed life is also a life under his protection. A reclaimed life is also a life 
under his protection. Go back to John chapter 10 and verse 12. We've been rescued, but not rescued to just kind of float through life. We've been rescued to purpose. See, that's the joy of the reclaimed life. But we also have a life under his protection. Verse 12 of John chapter 10. But he that is a hireling and not the shepherd, whose own, who, whose own the sheep are not, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf catches them and scatters the sheep. Verse 13. The hireling flees because he is a hireling and cares not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine. You see, he will not abandon you because he is good and he sees what's coming. So, okay, no one's been blessed by that. Okay, I'll say it again. So he sees what you're going through. He sees what's coming and he will not abandon you. Okay, a few more people are getting it, okay? We need to understand this. Because we live in fear so much of our lives. And I think to live the reclaimed life is a life lived not in fear, but in trust. Not just that God is good, but he's good enough to watch over us. Well, wait a minute now. Hang on, brother. But this happened to me, and that couldn't be good. This happened to me, or I was in this situation, or I was in a car accident, or I got sick. Or how could that? we got to define good the way God defines good. And he may allow a seemingly not good situation into your life and still take good and make good from it. Because again, remember, God allowing something into your life doesn't mean God authored something into your life. Now, God sometimes does, of his own volition, put us through things. What does Peter say? To refine us, right? Not tests and trials to sin, but to more be like Christ. Then we know that Satan and the world and even our flesh will tempt us and try us to sin. And that tempting and trying may bring things into our life that we're not comfortable with. But we have to be careful that no matter what's going on around us, we know he is good. We've already established this. What makes God good? What makes Christ good? Because he died for us, gave his life for us. He is the good shepherd. He will protect us as we follow him, as we are part of his uh, shepherding fold, his sheepfold. So what does this look like? Well, it's a blessing he will not abandon you. He will not flee when a threat arises. He will not run. He will stand at the door to the sheepfold and under his watchful eye and strong hand, we will rest in his peace. I've heard it said culturally, and I've yet to find where it's been kind of debunked, if you will, but many have said that, that the, the, the sheepfold, where the sheep would be gathered for the night, that the shepherd would actually lay across the entrance to that sheepfold. And that's how he knows he can protect the sheep, because he's literally laying in the entrance. Nothing can get to the sheep without first going through him. I want to let you know something today. Christ is your good shepherd, and he is the door. He already told us that. There's nothing getting in the sheepfold unless it goes through Christ. And I trust my Savior to be strong enough to protect me, to watch over me, to keep me so that I can be in peace. The hired hand is the opposite of the shepherd that Jesus speaks of here is this, in this illustration, is not the owner of the sheep. The idea of owner here implies that the sheep are purchased by the shepherd, which later, obviously, Paul says the exact same thing. He states that our bodies are not our own. We have been bought with a price. So when you look at this here, as I just hit a button on my iPad and decided to just kind of do its own thing. So give me a second here. Wow, that really just jumped away from my screen. Isn't technology great? Isn't it great? It's going. Okay. Some of you are like, well, if his iPad breaks, he'll stop preaching. We can go home. (laughs) Nobody thought that. Nobody thought that. When you see this idea of what Paul's saying... Um, that we are purchased by the shepherd. He has an invested interest in us. He is not just a hired hand. You see, the hired hand, again, is interested only in self-preservation, not in the care and the interest of the sheep. And we see here that there's these two, the shepherd and the hired hand. And then it says that when this comes, the hired hand runs. What does it say is coming? When the wolf comes. Now, again, this is an illustration. Okay, This is... Christ is teaching these truths, but through a story form. 
When the wolf comes, the, the hired hand leaves. Why? Because I'm not getting paid enough for this, right? I'm not getting paid enough to give my life for the sheep. I'm sorry, shepherd, but I'm gone. I'm out, okay? But Jesus doesn't flee. In fact, he stands guard and defends us against the wolf. But draws the question, well, who is the wolf then? What is the wolf and comes to attack us and scatter the sheep, Jesus says. Many here think it is the enemy, Satan. They think that the, the, shepherd or the, the wolf is Satan coming to devour the sheep. It could be. Obviously, Satan is a roaming lion seeking who may devour. But I, maybe it's more than that. Because how has Satan already been identified in the text? As a thief that comes to steal and to kill and destroy. Now, this could still be referring to, the, this, to Satan as far as the wolf coming. But maybe it could mean even something more than that. One commentator said it this way, The wolf is generally anyone who comes upon the flock with hostile intent in whatever form. The wolf here is generally anyone who comes upon the flock with hostile intent in whatever form. May I suggest that the world can be a wolf at times in our lives? The pressures of this culture, people in our lives can be a wolf at times in this life. Maybe even our own selves can be the wolf at times. No matter what form it takes, no matter what shape it takes, I am so thankful that Christ can and will protect us from ourselves at times, from other people, from the world. And obviously we know greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So not only will he protect us by not abandoning us, he will also guide his sheep home. He will guide his sheep home. John chapter 10, verse 15. A couple more verses and we're going to close. John chapter 10, verse 15 says this. As the Father knows me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 16. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Now, you might think, what does this have to do with going home? I, I want to point out the confidence of Jesus Christ here, the guarantee that he lays forth here. Jesus says there are sheep not of this fold, referring, many believe, to the Gentiles or the non-Jews that will be saved, as well as believers today are being saved because he still saves, because he still guides us and leads us and redeems us. But I want you to know something here. He says with great confidence, he will bring them and they will hear his voice. And if they hear his voice, he already told us in the text, they are mine and I am theirs. And as the Father and I are one, so we will be one, one, sh one fold, one shepherd. One author said it this way, this is more than the language of mere foresight that they would believe, but the expression of a purpose to draw them the Gentiles, and those that would be believers to himself. There's great confidence here. It's not just like, I think they're going to get saved. I know they're going to get saved. It's, no, no, no. I will do this. What does Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 say? Be confident of this very thing, that he which begun a good work in you will perform it unto the day of Christ Jesus. He will perfect it. He will finish the work that he started in you. And I believe Christ here is giving us that confidence. Christ accomplished and is accomplishing his plan. He is saving and guiding and guarding his sheep in this life until we are finally brought home and realize the fullness of the presence of the shepherd. See, in this life, we experience a taste of Psalm 23 fulfilled. In the next life, we will experience the fullness of Psalm 23 fulfilled in our lives where we will see him as the good shepherd and we will rest at his feet Again, not rest in inactivity, but rest in utter and complete peace. So we have been reclaimed in Christ, completely reclaimed in Christ, and now we can live that life that God desires for us to live. We don't have to let the sins of yesterday make us believe that we are useless. 
God didn't just strip us down at the moment of salvation and begin rebuilding. I believe God is constantly stripping us down, getting rid of the old junk, the old wood, and he's finding those good beams. He's finding that good treasure, and then he's going to rebuild using his ability, his power, his Holy Spirit, rebuild in us the beautiful masterpiece that he desires to create that will bring him the ultimate glory. So I want to encourage you something this morning. Are you ready to take your life back? Are you ready to take your life back from that thing that has been pulling at you, that enemy that wants to mislead you and destroy you, that wolf that keeps coming against you? Are you ready to say, no, 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 I'm taking my life back. I'm going to live the abundant life, not in me, but in Christ, because that's what he made available through the cross. And so here's what I want to do this morning, and I don't usually prompt this way. But if you're ready to take your life back and you're ready to live the reclaimed life, you're tired of just getting by. You're tired of just coasting. You're tired of just going, getting up and doing the same old thing. But every single day, you're going to make a purpose decision before your feet even hit the floor to say, God, no, today is your day. Help me to live the reclaimed life today. I want to make you known. I want to make you glorified today. Not about me. It's all about you. No matter what today brings, I'm living the reclaimed life today. And so if that's you and the desire of your heart is to make that commitment today, then when we close in prayer in just a moment and have a time of invitation, maybe you'd come and pray maybe as a mom and dad, a husband and wife, an individual, whatever, and say, no, we're going to live the reclaimed life. We're not just getting by anymore. We're going to enjoy and invest in every single moment God has given us for his glory because that's the abundant life, to be saved and know Christ and to go and find rest in his pasture. And so maybe some of you this morning need to come and pray and say, God, I've not been resting. Now, you may be getting rest physically, but you're not resting. You're not truly allowing him to be your good shepherd. Maybe you'd come and say, God, I'm ready to believe you're my good shepherd, not because of these things that I want it to be, but because you died for me, because you resurrected me, because you've given me life, may I now live for you. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer as we ask God to lead us this morning? Father, we thank you for your grace and your love. We thank you for your mercy that you've provided to us. And we pray, Lord, that we would live the reclaimed life. We pray, Lord, that we would live the position you've given us and that we would know that the abundant life is so much more than stuff. It's about having that connection, that relationship with you, that by Christ, through salvation, we can go in and out of pasture and find that peace and that rest. And Father, I'm so thankful for that. We need it. You know what we need. You rescued us long before we even knew we needed to be rescued. Because in that while we were yet sinners, Lord, you died for us. And so I pray, Lord, that we would understand the abundant life is available today through Christ, that we would decide today to live that life, to live the reclaimed life to your glory and your honor. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand to your feet this morning? If you want to take your life back, maybe take it back from a disappointment discouraging situation, a person, a past sin, you're tired of that thing just holding you down, reclaim, allow God rather to reclaim your life. Come this morning and just say, no, I'm taking my life back and I'm giving it to you, God. You be glorified as we sing.